Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin has six lines to fit your style and financing to fit any budget. Through November 30th, choose 12 months, no payments and no interest, plus 20% off installation. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Melissa Barkley, before you go, I just want to announce at the beginning of the day, we are declaring today Daphne Day. Today is ah. Daphne Day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, we were kind of talking off the air about how there's a lot of our, our teammates, our coworkers, that because of COVID and the way we've changed things, we, we, just, we just don't see very don't much see at all. We don't see them, yeah. And I'm always very mindful of, of the fact that I think people who listen to, to us, it, okay, it's the Jeff Wagner Show, so I'm, I'm the guy behind the microphone, but the Jeff Wagner Show doesn't happen, and, and Melissa Barkley, a star news reporter, doesn't happen if we don't have all these people uh, in in the background that that help make our lives easier and help us whether it's the people that work in traffic which in the radio industry is scheduling the commercials yes. or, mm-hmm. or our great sales staff or or my producer who you know does all the stuff that you know to, to that he has to do to make sure that the Jeff Wagner show occurs or that Melissa Barkley gets to do her newscast mm-hmm. and there's all these people behind the scenes who um I mean it's their jobs but they're vital cogs who don't get a lot of recognition. So today is the first day that we have open enrollment for our insurance things. You know, every year people have to to go through this open enrollment. And I don't know about you, but I I always kind of dread it because (laughs) it's too. Well, well, you do because it's that. And and the one thing I, I do know is when you're dealing with like insurance issues, you you want it to be easy and you don't want to make a mistake because that can lead to all sorts of problems. So in years past, I, and I'm, I'm talking about, you know, year after year after year, because you have to do this every year. There have been some years where there, there's just been problems. And maybe it was when we were owned by Scripps or whatever, where, you know, you, you'd say, okay, you're able to log on at 8 o'clock, and you go and you put in your information. It doesn't re- it doesn't have any record of you. And you're going, oh, gosh. And, you know, yeah, yeah. and then you're like, well, you need to get the insurance. So today, today, 8 o'clock, you were able to enroll if you want. If you don't, you don't have to do it at eight. You got several days. But I happened to be up in my office at home, and I saw you started it, to enroll. I, well, I not only started to enroll; it took me three minutes. Oh, good. it was the easy. I I went. I clicked on the link. The link had Jeff and Fran. I said you want to. It said you want to start. I started, and I was able to complete the entire enrollment in. in I said three minutes, less than five. Okay, let all me ask in you all this. Done. Did you change anything from last year? Um, one very minor thing. Okay, perfect. Because that gives me a little insight of what I have to do. But that's it. You know, so it it takes you page by page and it says, this is what you have. This is what you've had now. Mm -hmm. Do you want to keep it? You just, and page by page. The only thing I did is, um, uh, there, there was an opportunity for, for like three bucks, six bucks a month. I I could add like $10,000 life insurance for for Fran. So I did that. That was the only oh, otherwise good, but it was yeah. the same. But it was but it was all the same. 3 minutes in and out. Nothing complicated. It registers, it gives you all the stuff and it worked just like a charm. Well, Daphne is our head of human resources who I know worked months and months and months getting this put together so that it worked as smoothly as it did. And I got to believe, that, first of all, 
human resources, there's probably some of these jobs that are really thankless. And human resources, I've never done it, but it strikes me as one of those jobs that's thankless because well, people are complaining. All it kind of yeah. reminds me of like the human resources department. It's like that corner room upstairs in a in a building that's that's hr so that's nice you're giving daphne sort of a platform well, and saying thank you that's well, so great well that's it because again mm-hmm. I, i'm picturing this this is sort of it, it's <laughs> probably one of those in those those jobs where you only hear when people are hacked off you know i yeah. th- this didn't come through or my paycheck isn't right or this or that or the other it, it's just probably one of those very important but thankless jobs people come people, to you with all their problems right exactly and so and so this worked so very very smoothly and again to me it's always a big deal because insurance to me is is a big deal you know whether it's health insurance you you want to get it right because if you don't get it right and you actually need it at some point in time it could be a mess so it worked so incredibly smoothly so i, I sat down i sent her a note and i said congratulations i, I said this is it, it was incredibly smooth i was able to register good job thanks for the effort and so and, and she responded back said well nice it worked out for you but i just that wasn't enough i just wanted to say <laughs> at least on the wagner program yeah. today is daphne day oh, our I great love that. human resources person who who came Came through and did that. She is very nice. She's she's a new HR person here, but, but she's beautiful. She does such great work. Well, it, so it, today today is Daphne Day because it it could not, at least for me, have been smoother. Now maybe some of our teammates or colleagues are going to come in and have problems. I don't know. <laughs> don't care. For me, it worked out. I was like, you're making me look forward to this enrollment. Well, I've it, never done that. I've never looked forward to that was, before. It was it was easy, and it's just. I mean, I have all these things. I, I have checklists. Yes. I, I'm one of these people like I check. Okay, this is what you have to do for today. That was my th- assignment for today. And I was thinking, okay, this is going to take 20 minutes this morning, and I'm going to have to go back and forth and pull records and check things. Couldn't have been easier. Nice. Five minutes in and done. Daphne Day on the Wagner program. I love it. Okay, so we'll see you later. You're going to be doing the – and you got your shot today. You got your booster shot. I did. I got my booster shot today. So I'm kind of – you know, I actually forgot about it. I got it this morning. I was doing news. I got busy, and I was like, oh, wait, I still okay. <laughs> I got my booster today. So, Good. yeah, that's um, – I'm kind of, you know, just – keeping my my head together if good. i feel any aches or pains or anything but you know good. otherwise i'm good to go good good yeah. good well we'll see you for the balance of the show Sounds all good. right it's daphne day it is also written house jury deliberation day two. First of all let me repeat something that i said on multiple occasions yesterday if you have any quote unquote legal expert that's out there who claims to know what's going on in the jury or when you're going to get a verdict, that's somebody who's just blowing smoke because nobody knows. I have had, in the course of over 100 federal criminal jury trials, I have had... I've had cases where I was positive that the jury was going to be out for a couple days, and, and they come back in two hours. I've had other cases where I thought it was just kind of an open and shut case, and there's really nothing, and, and they, they end up deliberating for three days or four days. You just do not know what is going on in a jury room. The developments of today, jury came back at 9 o'clock in the morning, resumed deliberations, and apparently around 11, they told the judge that they wanted to see some video evidence they wanted to you know look at at various pieces of evidence that were video evidence that were played at at trial and the judge said sure and what they're going to do is they're going to show them to the jury in the courtroom the courtroom will be cleared um nobody's going to be able to be in so the jury can talk about that but um they wanted to see some video evidence that is not an unusual sort of thing i mean typically what would happen 
Now, now we're in the day of a lot of trials don't have video evidence, but I mean, typically what happens is, is you send the exhibits, the various exhibits, the pieces of evidence that have been introduced in trial. Typically, you, you send them back into the jury room, unless they're guns or drugs or, or things like that, and and the jury can feel them and touch them. And so this, since this evidence was introduced at trial, they'll they'll be able to rewatch it and and discuss it because again, the courtroom is going to be empty, so it's just going to be the jury. I, I don't. Maybe there's some people out there who are reading stuff into this one way or the other. I, I think that that would be a mistake. It's just this was a big deal that was made, and my guess is you've got some people in the jury who are talking about different events, and we want to see this again, and people remember different sort of things. So I, I don't think you can read too much into it. I would view this as sort of a routine kind of request to examine evidence, especially since the video evidence, both sides, both the prosecution and the defense, made such a big deal of this, and it was so key. I mean, I think they, they want to examine it. So it's a perfectly reasonable thing. That's where we stand. Now, obviously, if there is a verdict, uh, the judge has already said, I, th- I think he said that it's going to be at least an hour notice if the ju- once the jury says that they have got a verdict. Obviously, if there is a verdict, we will endeavor to bring it to you live and um, also offer commentary after the verdict. But if, if you're asking me, gee, Jeff, do you think that they're going to have a verdict by 3 o'clock today? Do you think they're going to have a verdict by the end of the day today? I, I, I don't know. And, and anybody that tells you they do know, again, is just sort of guessing. There are, though, a number of issues related to this trial that I think are very much open for discussion. And I want to talk about something that is going on as we speak on the steps of the Kenosha Courthouse. Now, there's no question that the eyes of the nation are, are watching this verdict for a variety of of reasons. And as we've talked about before, I, I think, for example, Governor Tony Evers has learned from what was a very, very bad mistake that he made in August of 2020 by not sending enough National Guard troops and not and restricting what they were allowed to do. I think the Kenosha Police, the Kenosha Sheriff's Department also has learned from that because, as they say, they were overwhelmed. The Kyle Rittenhouse situation, regardless of what you think of it and who was right and who was wrong, it doesn't happen that third night if civilian authority had not lost control of the streets the first two nights. And I think, you know, there is now a concerted effort that's going to be made to not allow that to happen again. We're not going to tolerate rioting. We're not going to tolerate looting. We're not going to tolerate the sort of violence. And my guess is you're going to see when they announce a verdict, you're, you're going to have a huge law enforcement presence that's not going to let stuff get out of control like happened on those first several nights in Kenosha in August of 2020. Well, what you have right now is you have people who are gathered on the steps of the courthouse. It's it's a hand. It started out as a handful. There have been, I don't know, maybe a dozen people that have been on the, the steps of the courthouse for the entire trial. And you've got people on both sides. Convict Rittenhouse, he's a white supremacist. Free Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, he's a patriot. And, and and there's people on both sides. And over the course, particularly of the last day or two, the numbers of people coming have been growing. 
including the fact that you've apparently got now people from out of the area, including out of state, who are coming. I'm not suggesting that you've got thousands that are there now. That's not the case. But the number of people who are gathering on the courthouse are, in fact, increasing. If you watch the TV video from the courthouse, you will see that you have people on both sides who are coming into conflict with each other already, screaming at each other and shouting at each other and things of of the like on the courthouse steps. So it is a somewhat, at this point in time, under control, but volatile sort of situation. All right, understanding that you want to keep everything under control. And you don't want to let this get out of hand, especially as the jury deliberations come. And my guess is when they announce they've got a verdict, there's going to be more people that are pouring in. You have a number of people that are very, very, have very, very strong emotional feelings about this on both sides. And they're already starting to have confrontations. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think starting like yesterday, but particularly right now, I think law enforcement needs to be aggressive. And if there's people on the courthouse steps that are screaming and engaging in what we would describe as disorderly conduct and yelling and threatening, just like we would not tolerate that at any other point in time, I think the police, I think the authorities need to be aggressive, starting now, in getting out the bad actors, the the people that aren't there for peaceful protest, but rather are there to cause trouble because you've got to nip it in the bud. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, you do have disorderly conduct statutes. You have the ability, if you choose, to try to say to people, look, you got to calm down. You, you can't be screaming and you can't be using this type of language at the top of your lungs. And if your inf- intent is to try to influence the jury so they can hear you or intimidate other people, we're not going to let you do it. At least we're not going to let you do it on the public streets outside the courthouse. And you're going to have to either move along or we are going to move you along. And if you don't move along pursuant to our requests, well, then we're going to arrest you for disorderly conduct or whatever. And I would apply that to both sides here. But I think, you know, there has to be a show of, I don't want to necessarily use force, the word force, but a show of authority early on against people who are clearly, I think, in my opinion, there to disrupt the proceedings and cause trouble. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, I mean, here's the way WISN-TV d- describes this in the report, just the c- first couple paragraphs of the story. It was the largest and liveliest group of protesters seen since the trial began, many times screaming in each other's faces, shoving and sometimes whacking each other over the head with their signs. Kenosha County Sheriff's deputies were always watching but never intervened. Protesters never became violent. At the end of the night, they went home. Okay, well, oh, I, I don't know if you're hitting p- other people with, with your signs. I, I don't know how exactly you define violent. But I guess my, my point is you have people that are down there that I think are intent on causing trouble. They are the chaos tourists that, you know, I think were around Kenosha for those first three nights that led to some of these problems. And, and my only point is 
if you're down there and you're screaming already and you're in the other side's face and you're banging each other over the head with signs, you, you are there for no good. And, I mean, last time I checked, there's disorderly conduct statutes. There's things of the like. I think if I were the Kenosha police, if I were the Kenosha Sheriff's Department, I would be separating these groups. I would be moving them away from the courthouse. I would not allow large groups to gather in this area in the first place because nothing good is going to come of that. And the reason I guess a lot of people are there is because, well, we've got this side. We want to represent our side. Nothing good is going to come of this. And maybe you should just try to be a little proactive, move these groups away from the courthouse, tell people we're not going to let you scream and be disruptive. We're not going to let you whack other people over the head with signs. And if you do, we're, we're going to arrest you. Get control of this first before you get hundreds of people or thousands of people, if that's what happens, that descend in this area, all of whom have an agenda. Rachel in Waukesha. Rachel, you're on WTMJ. Hi, thanks for taking my call and having such a good pulse on what's happening down there. I was shocked that the TV last night was showing the police just standing by and observing and not intervening. Um, I was down there the other day uh, near there, and already at 8 o'clock in the morning there's, you know, 10, 12 people on the steps and the news media across in the park. Right. You know, there's plenty of places over in the park for them to go and gather and have, you know, a yeah. separate space built, you know, and things like that. But yeah. if they don't do something to set the tone yes. of what's, toler- what's going to be tolerated, um, yeah. it's going to be... It's- Bad. Right. Get, get oh, under control. Get it under control. No, thanks for the call, Rage. Get it under control er- early. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm listening to these descriptions. Okay. Uh, imagine, you know, Rachel dropped off their cell phone, but imagine Rachel and I are a- on a public sidewalk outside a, a, I don't know, outside a business, and we're we're screaming at each other, and Rachel's got a sign, and I've got a sign, and she's hitting me, and I'm hitting her. Do you really think the police are just going to stand by and watch this? No, they're they're going to say, "Hey, you can't be doing that, Jeff or Rachel. You can't be doing that." They're they're going to break us up, and they're going to say, "You got to knock this off." And if we refuse to knock it off, well, one of the two of us, or maybe both of us, are going to be in handcuffs, and, and we're going to be you know spending our afternoon as, as guests of Kenosha County. That that that's my only point. I, and I understand law enforcement doesn't want to intervene if they don't have to. I get that. I understand that they don't want to be perceived as coming across as heavy-handed. But the people, by and large, they're gathering on that courthouse and have been. They have agendas. They are already, in some cases, extremely angry, and they're just waiting for that, that fuse to be lit. And that's why I think There's got to be a huge National Guard presence. I think there has to be a huge police presence. I've already argued with the idea that I, for the idea that you'd rather be safe than sorry. You'd rather have a lot of cops there. You'd have a lot, rather have the National Guard there and not need them than not have them and need them desperately. But I think it starts with saying, we're we're moving people off these courthouse steps. And if you're going to be disruptive and if you're going to be screaming and if your purpose is to try to get the attention and scare the jury into returning a verdict this way or other way, we're not going to Tolerate that. So nip it in the bud before it gets out of control. You do not want a repeat of August 2020. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
My favorite text of the day so far. Jeff, don't these people have jobs? <laughs> they just, which, which is, you do always wonder when you have these like professional protesters, it's like, don't you people have jobs? They just need a life of their own with other responsibilities and let the justice system play out. I agree entirely. Oh, and by the way, one other thought before I turn it over to Melissa for the news. The, one of the troubling, and yes, I use the word troubling pictures that you see is there, there's some guy that's wandering around with an AR-15 and like a heavy flak jacket and a bulletproof vest. This isn't about whether you have the right to do something or whether something's the right thing. It's about whether it's the right thing to do. Given everything that has gone on in Kenosha since August of 2020, and given you know the, what's going on with this trial, the idea of civilians walking around in military gear carrying openly exposed AR-15s, whether it's lawful or not. Let's put that aside. That's not helpful. Bringing guns into this situation, openly carried, legally carried via concealed uh, weapons carry permits or whatever, bringing guns into this situation is not helpful at this point in time. And I don't care what side you're on or who you support or whatever. This is the jury's going to do its job. There's going to be a verdict. And and again, people need to dial it down a notch. And the presence and introducing the presence of firearms in this particular situation to me is unhelpful in the extreme. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I'm just I'm watching the video of 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 the crowds that are gathering and there's there's a guy that shows up with an AR-15 and a flak jacket calls himself Maserati Mike who's the, the Kenosha police apparently went up to him and said uh, can you move on and he got in his car and drove off but you, you know it's very clear if you watch this that there's a lot of attention seekers that are there that the media is all camped out you know you've got national media you've got local media everybody's under tents at this park that's across the street and you know you have all these other people that are there trying to get their 15 minutes of fame or 15 seconds of fame or, or whatever. And it's just it's just a volatile situation. And that's why like I say I think the authorities would be well advised to not let this get out of control. And if you have people that are engaging in disorderly conduct and screaming at each other and whacking each other over the head with signs or whatever, it's time to move them along. And if they don't move along, it's time to make them move along. And if you can't make them move along peacefully, that's what God made handcuffs for. You, it's got to be under control, it seems to me. All right, let, let, us, let us switch gears. The One of the controversies and and I have been critical of the judge, not necessarily for the way he ruled, but for the way he did it, was his decision to dismiss count six against Kyle Rittenhouse. Count six was the gun charge. Um, as you will recall, Rittenhouse was accused of illegally possessing a, a firearm, in this case, a, a rifle, wandering the streets of Kenosha with a with an AR loaded AR-15. The judge, after the jury had been sworn, decided to throw that out. Now, I think as a matter of law, the judge is probably right. But the way he did it, as I've tried to explain, the way he did it by not ruling on this motion pre-trial and then by not letting it go to the jury and then throw it out, what he's done is he's prevented the prosecution from able, being able to appeal this and, and get a ruling. 
So, I mean, I think the more responsible thing for the judge would have been either to rule on this pretrial or alternatively to let the jury decide, because then if he thought that that it was still illegal, he he could have tossed it. He could have directed a verdict after this. So I'm critical of the way he handled it, although I don't necessarily think he's wrong. Here is... Let me try to make this as simple as possible. Here's the Wisconsin statute. The Wisconsin statute says any person under 18 years of age who possesses or goes armed with a dangerous weapon is guilty of a Class A misdemeanor. So you might say to me, Jeff, what, what's the deal? I mean, Rittenhouse, why is this an issue? We're seeing the he was there. He had this AR-15. He's 17 years old. He's He's possessing this dangerous weapon. Well, all right, you read a little bit further in the statute, and subsection 3C says, and I quote, this section applies only to a person under 18 years of age who possesses or is armed with a rifle or a shotgun if the person is in violation of section 941.28, which refers to sawed-off shotguns and sawed-off rifles. So the... If you read these two sections, the one section says can't have dangerous weapon. The other section says if it's a rifle or a shotgun, it only applies if it's if it's short barreled, if it's sawed off. And so th- this wasn't a sawed off AR-15, wasn't a sawed off shotgun. So the judge said the statute doesn't apply, and he and he he tosses it. And that might be the right legal ruling. I don't know what the legislature was trying to accomplish here. I, I don't know. If they were trying to say it's okay for 16 and 17 year olds to carry rifles and shotguns because we, we don't want to restrict target shooting or deer hunting or, or, you know, what do you, you know, trap shooting or things like that. I, I don't know if that's what they were thinking. Clearly, if there was a handgun, this, this exception wouldn't apply, but it, it does at least appear, at least that's the argument on its surface that 16 and 17 year olds would be legally allowed to openly carry rifles and shotguns on streets. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, I don't know what the legislature intended, but this is something that that could and obviously should be cleared up one way or the other. And the way you do it is by getting the Republicans and the Democrats and the state assembly and the state Senate to come together and to decide, you know, what they think that the law should mean. And if they decide that they think that that's what they really intended for 16 and 17 year olds to be carrying rifles on the public streets, well, they could certainly make the statute clear. Similarly, if they didn't think that that was a good idea, they they could say that in the statute as well. There's all sorts of things that you could do. There's ways you could easily structure this to say, okay, it's one thing to have a rifle or shotgun if you're in the act of hunting or trap shooting or whatever. It's another thing if you're 16 or 17, you shouldn't be carrying an AR-15 or a shotgun or you know any sort of other hunting rifle on the, the streets of a city. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let us tee this up. Do you think 16 and 17 year olds should be allowed to legally carry firearms in public on city streets outside of the context of hunting, trap shooting, etc., etc.? Do you think it should be legal 
to do what Rittenhouse did that night at the age of 17, that is carry a firearm, carry a rifle like he did. But let's forget about all the stuff that happened afterwards. Do we think should kids, 16 and 17-year-old kids, and I've described him as an immature kid um, before, should it be legal to do what he did? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Take it out of the Rittenhouse situation. Or, or let, let, let's forget Kyle Rittenhouse. If I gave you this scenario of, hey, do you think it's a good idea? We've got a bunch of 16- and 17-year-old gang members in the city of Racine or Kenosha or Milwaukee or or wherever who've decided that they want to all go out and buy AR-15s and walk around the streets of Milwaukee carrying and displaying and brandishing their AR-15s. Would you think that that would would be a a good idea? All right, so, I mean, it's not just Rittenhouse. These are these kind of larger issues that are out there. And at the risk of running afoul of some of the folks who are just Second Amendment absolutists. I, I'm sorry, I, this is a recipe for disaster. I, I think the intent of the law was to say that 16- and 17-year-olds should not be able to publicly carry um, rifles and shotguns as well as handguns. Now, I mean, obviously, you, you carve out certain exceptions. If 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 you're going to be a tr- go to shoot trap or something, well, you let them have the unloaded shotguns to carry it from one place to the other. But as far as walking up and down the streets with an AR-15 or any sort of other kind of weapon, I, I I don't think it's appropriate for 16 and 17 year olds. I think nothing good can come of it. And you could certainly be able to write a statute which would say it's one thing to possess a rifle that you're going to go to use for deer hunting. It's another thing to say you can't possess it walking around city streets. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, Jeff, you just about made my point. Uh, There's no rifle ranges in the city of Kenosha or Milwaukee. Uh, you can't take your gun out and shoot it in the street to sight it in, and there certainly is no hunting within the city limits. Right. So from your house to the rifle range or from your house to the hunting lodge, that gun should be unloaded and in a case. Yep. Yeah, right. right Period. Right, I mean, there right, exactly. really should be nothing else. Yeah, and, and there's, I mean, there's no, and, and let's face it, Rittenhouse, or in my examples, you know, the the 16 year old gang members, they're they're not they're not using it to go deer hunting, you know, they're 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 using this for intimidation or, or maybe it's self defense or whatever, but it contributes to making it a much more dangerous situation, and it leads to stuff like we had happen in this whole case. If Rittenhouse doesn't have this gun, none of this, none of this that's been going on for the last 15 months. Has happens so no thanks to call appreciate it. 855-616-1620 that's the accurate mortgage talk and text line i mean there, there's ways i see the fundamental question and and maybe it's even self-evident when i ask it is do we think do you think it's a good idea should 16 and 17 year olds be able to legally brandish guns on on public streets 
And and I and my answer is no. I'm sorry. I just don't think that that's a good idea. Without your parents' permission, you can't get a tattoo and, until you're 18. And even with your parents' permission, you you can carry like an AR-15 or a shotgun or whatever. Don't want to obsess on the type of weapon. I mean, it's just 16 and 17 year olds. With all due respect, I don't think should be carrying weapons on public streets. Nothing good comes of that. Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon, Jeff. You know, with all the dysfunction and chaos we have in this community of Milwaukee, the fact that it, it would be ludicrous to, to allow 16- and 17-year-olds to walk around with rifles and yeah. AR-15s, it, 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 you know, this law makes absolutely no sense. The fact is that there's no situation where you can have teenagers, teenagers, Right. being allowed to open carry in the state. It, right. it, 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 you know, it, it's just unbelievable to me. So, no, I, I think the, the, the legislature should come together and, uh, right. and do something about this law because uh, the next thing you know you're going to have in this city uh, is going to be right. a new weapon of choice. Yeah, well, well, exactly. Walking around, these young folks going to be walking around with these guns. And, so, and, 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 and then the police can't do anything to, 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 them, to them until something happens, and something will happen. It, it will, Vincent. No, thanks for calling. And, and see, here's the ultimate irony of the law. The, as to handguns, I think the law is pretty clear that if you're 16 and 17 year old, you can't uh, you can't openly carry a handgun publicly. So, we, but we've carved out this I- exception for. And again, I think I I think that the law is just poorly drafted because otherwise it would make no sense. You can't legally carry handguns, but you can ca- legally carry a, a shotgun or an AR-15. That makes no damn sense at all. And I'm sorry. And again, I, I think people need to think beyond the Rittenhouse case, and that's what I'm trying to do here. Regardless of whether you feel this was self-defense or whatever, at some point in time, young people carrying, openly carrying shotguns and assault rifles or AR-15s for people who don't, you know, like the term assault rifle. I don't care what. People carrying these type of firearms openly on the streets of Milwaukee or the streets of Racine or Kenosha or Green Bay or, you know, Wapaka, this isn't a good idea. And this ruling apparently makes it legal to do that, which is why the legislature, Republicans and Democrats, need to get in session like about yesterday and make clear that the law is going to change, do whatever you have to do to make clear that the law is going to apply and say kids, minors, are not allowed to openly carry firearms on the streets. And again, you can craft out. I'm not saying that people, I get the deer hunting starts this weekend. I get it. I'm not saying that a 17 year old shouldn't be able to go in the woods and shoot, you know, a deer or things like that. You can craft out some of those exceptions. But if this is in fact the law, this Rittenhouse case is just the start of this. And you're going to see all sorts of people feeling that they are now emboldened to show up with high-powered rifles or shotguns and walk up and down the streets of various cities in Wisconsin, and that is not a good thing. John, who's calling us from Illinois. John, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. How's it going? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, uh, you're absolutely right. Vincent was absolutely right. I'm just going to go a step further. I don't even see how you can how you can even think there's another side to this. It's yeah. Totally preposterous. Guns, guns have only one purpose: either to shoot someone or to kill someone, whether it's an animal or a person or whatever. That's the only person they have. So if you're carrying a gun, what, what are you thinking? The intent has to be there. 
and that this is just preposterous. We have to get our act together and solve this because this is Right. Well, right, exactly. And I guess my concern is, again, big picture, that you will have other Kyle Rittenhouses, uh, or, again, I'm, I'm using the extreme, the, the gang members or, or whatever, that will decide that, okay, this is going to be cool, we're going to march down these particular city streets or, or whatever, and we're going to be carrying these AR-15s, or we're going to be carrying shotguns, or we're going to be carrying whatever, and you, you, you think you think we don't have enough problems with violence now? That This is something that I think, again, all the legislature sh- legislators should be able to agree on, that if if 16- or 17-year-old can't carry a handgun, you know, legally, outside of the hunting context, why in God's green earth should them carry a shotgun or an AR-15? It, it's just, it, it makes absolutely no sense. Republicans, Democrats, Governor Evers, get together, clear this up, for goodness sakes, before something else bad happens. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. This is, I, I'm often convinced that if you had a, a Martian spacecraft that landed, let's say, Cathedral Park, downtown Milwaukee, and you tried to explain to the Martians why we do certain things, the Martians would immediately get back in their spacecraft, fly away, saying there's no intelligent life on Earth. Because sometimes it's just difficult to explain. Did this last segment about, you know, 16 and 17 year olds carrying shotguns and AR 15s on, on, on the streets for non hunting purposes? It, it, it's just, regardless of where you are on Second Amendment, this is something that just, just makes no sense to me. And I think the legislature needs to deal with it really quick. Before before you have a Rittenhouse exception that's now a justification for people with obvious bad intent deciding that, hey, this is let's let's arm the 16 and 17 year olds and gangs and send them on the streets. This is another one of these stories. And we're going to talk about the merits of this a little bit later on. But I just wanted to raise this this press question. Joe Biden wants to do everything he can to force people to get vaccinated. He believes that vaccinations are the the way out of this. And my position has been consistent all along. I'm a pro-vaccine guy. Got the vaccination. Never looked back. I'll get the booster at at some point in time in the future in all probability. All right, so I'm a pro-vaccine guy. I think that employers have the right as a condition of employment to require people to get vaccinated. If employers take the position that, gee, because, you know, we we are we are we don't want people coming in and and uh, with covid and getting other people sick. I think employers have the right to do that. And you as an individual employee, I think you have the right to then say, OK, I, I, I can live with that or I can't live with that. And if you decide you can't live with that, that's fine. You you then go find another job. So, I mean, to me, I, that's I believe that. When it comes to the government forcing vaccinations, though, I I have an issue. I don't think the government, when it comes to COVID vaccinations, has the right to tell employers you have to make your people be vaccinated or else you're going to be subject to fines. I just don't think the government has that authority. Joe Biden does. 
And Joe Biden has directed his OSHA, Occupational Safety Health Administration, to pass this rule, which says that any employer that has more than 100 people has to have the people vaccinated, essentially. That rule, which which to me, first of all, it makes no sense, because why why do you do it with 100? I mean, if if the need is to have people vaccinated, why, why do you say 100 or more? Why don't you say 10 or more or whatever? In any event, that's been challenged in court, and the courts thus far have put a hold on this, saying, no, that this is a government overreach. Well, there's a number of different legal challenges to this that are working their way, and ultimately it's the Supreme Court that's going to decide. But you have, what, 13 different appellate courts all across the country. For example, in Wisconsin, Federal cases are appealed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, which hears all the federal cases that are appealed from Wisconsin, Illinois, and Indiana. All right. So you've got all these different court of appeals and the different courts of appeal. Um, they have some are very, very liberal because of the makeup of the judges that are on them. The Ninth Circuit, for example, some are are more conservative um, for example, the Sixth Circuit. So you have this litigation. There, there's lawsuits all over the country about these vaccine mandates. And what you don't want to have happen is you don't want to have, I don't know, one circuit court of appeals rules one way and one rules the other, and it's just a mess. You, you want to sort of streamline this thing because ultimately, like I say, it's going to the United States Supreme Court. So what they did today, apparently the, the courts have decided that they, they were going to randomly choose one court of appeals and all these different challenges to the vaccine law all across the country would be handled by, they'd consolidate them, and they'd all be handled by one court of appeals. And that court of appeals will issue a ruling, and then presumably the case will go up to the Supreme Court. But the idea is to streamline the process to get it to the Supreme Court faster and not have, I don't know, a court of appeals that sits in San Francisco rule one way and a court of appeals that sits in Chicago rule another way. So the way they decided this was a ping pong ball lottery. And apparently it was just a a random drawing. And the Court of Appeals that's been assigned to handle the cases that are now going to be consolidated nationwide um, is based in the Sixth Circuit. That's Ohio. And it tends to be a more conservative court than, say, like the Ninth District based in in San Francisco. So um, Sixth District U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals is going to hear this case. At first, it'll be a three-judge panel, and you don't know what the makeup of that panel is going to be. That'll be a random draw. Then, undoubtedly, what will happen is the entire court, they call that sitting en banc, E-N-B-A-N-C, the entire court will probably hear it. Then the case goes to the Supreme Court. But but the, it was done by a ping-pong ball drawing. I guess they, they, put, they, they put the ping-pong balls with different numbers of the different court of appeals in it, and somebody drew one out, and it happens to be the Sixth Circuit. So that's, that's how we've decided at least what court of appeals across this country is going to get the first crack at this issue. It's the uh, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which, again, tends to have more conservative judges than perhaps some other courts. I think when this case gets to the Supreme Court, 
they're going to toss it. I, I think this is clearly a bridge too far, regardless of whether or not you feel that people should get vaccinated or not. I think the U.S. Supreme Court is going to say the government, particularly OSHA, doesn't have the authority to pass a workplace rule that, that requires this to happen. But in any event, it's going to be decided by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. All right. When we come back, something completely different. You ever quit your job? And how did you do it? I'll explain. We'll discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, here's the deal. In September, according to the Labor Department, 4.4 million workers resigned from their jobs. 4.4 million in September. And that's that's been a pretty consistent number for the last several months. The overall percentage of people who are considering leaving their jobs, there's this new marketing research study that I'm looking at it out, says about one in three, I mean, sorry, three in 10. So about 30% of people are actively considering leaving their, their jobs. Now, some people are doing it. There's been a huge number of retirements during COVID. You know, people, maybe they got phased out of their job, whatever. Maybe they were working at home and just decided they didn't want to come back. But we're looking at record numbers of retirements. And we're looking at, again, an enormous number of people who are just quitting. And in some cases, they're quitting to move to a different job. In other cases, they're quitting just to do nothing for a while. But they are, in fact, quitting in record numbers. And that's one of the things that's putting all the strain on the system. I mean, can I see a show of hands? You, you can't. Have you walked? Have you been to like a shopping center recently or, or gone, you know, into pretty much any sort of retail store? My guess is that that store has got a sign up that says hiring. I mean, it seems to me like every time I go into a place, whether it's a hardware store or the bagel store or the grocery store or you go to the big box retailer, there's a sign up that says hiring. Restaurants, pretty much you, you can't walk past a restaurant without seeing a sign saying hiring and bonuses for this or that or the other. The, the fact that so many people have, for whatever reasons, chosen to resign has created this huge demand. And I, I don't know how that's going to all level out, but I do know lots and lots of people are quitting, and, and that's why they're calling this period of time that it's, it's been coined like the Great Resignation. People who are just deciding, that's it, I've had it. And depending on what job you're in, you're more likely to leave. Um, s- nurses, for example, people in the healthcare industry who are strained by COVID. You know, they're, they're quitting in larger numbers. They're resigning. You've got people, particularly in some of the, the lower paying jobs, um, they're, they're resigning because they think that maybe they can, the grass is greener. You know, if you, you can, I don't know, if you're doing some job that you perceive as low pay and dead end, okay, maybe you've got a better chance you can go across the street because everybody's hiring now. But people, people are resigning in rate, record numbers. It is the great resignation, which brings, to mind a really interesting thing to me, which is how do you go about quitting your job? Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My guess is at some point in time, you have quit your job. Maybe you've quit your job in the last six months. But my guess is at some point in time, there has been a job you had that, that you ended up quitting. Maybe it was to go back to school. Maybe it was to change careers. Maybe it was just to move across the street and, you know, to to a competitor. But at some point in time, you know, you, you quit your job. So what I'm intrigued by is how you go about doing it. Um, is it just, 
hey, I just decided, you know, I I didn't like where I was working. I wasn't going to show up, and boom, I'm just gone. Is it, hey, I wrote a nice letter of resignation explaining why I was leaving. I gave people two weeks' notice. I say, let's stick around for four weeks or or whatever. Wanted to work this out. Um, Did I care if my boss found out that I was leaving to go somewhere else before I, I told him? 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you've quit a job, either recently or in the distant past, I guess, how do you go about doing it? What, if anything, do you owe your employer before you decide that you're you're gone? 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. See, people are resigning right and left. They're, this is the great era of the great resignation. I, I'm intrigued by how you go, how people go about doing it. Here's a text, Jeff. I left my first professional job after four years for a promotional opportunity at another agency. I submitted a resignation letter thanking them for the opportunity, explained that it was for a growth opportunity that didn't exist at that agency. Bottom line is, don't burn any bridges, especially if you are young. Let's talk to Mike and Lamira. Hi, Mike. You're on WTMJ. Hi. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for calling. What's up? What do you think? Well, as, as I told your screener, I worked as a 911 dispatcher for 27 years. And this past March, my wife got a, uh, a new job in the healthcare industry, and it provided her with considerable more compensation. She knew what stresses that I was under at my job, mm-hmm. and she gave me permission. She said, you can go. And I had a couple goals. I wanted to make it the 27th year, uh, which I did. But I told my employer in March, I said, I'm gone. That's right. September 9th. That's my date. So you gave them and, lots of uh, advance notice. Lots of advance notice. And they didn't believe me. They did not <laughs> believe me. And uh, they literally built the center up. I was the first original employee. And I was, uh, as I said, there a long time. So when the date started coming forward, they came to me and said, would you stay? And I said, to be honest with you, no. My company loyalty and with a lot of municipal employees is just not there anymore. Right, right. You know, it's, it's their theory that if you're there for seven years, they act for life, and we just don't see what other municipal employees are seeing anymore. And I and I said, if you pay me five hours more an hour, I will stay to the end of the year, and I'll help you train the staff. But you had plenty of notice. Right. They declined my offer. And, I'm a much happier person. Yeah, and but but you did it. I mean, it's not like you just walked out with no notice. You said now they might not have believed you, but you said, "Hey, it's March. Just so you know, September 15th or September 1st rolls around. I'm history." You at least, I mean, yep. you did what you think was a responsible way to go about leaving a job you'd been at for 27 years. It's a small town. You just can't walk away and leave right. it because you do have to live there. Right. Got it. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Uh, let's talk to Kent in Oconomowoc. Kent, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff, thanks for taking the call. Yes, sir. Uh, twice in my career, I'm in a professional sales business. Uh, it quit my job. Uh, the quitting is a direct result. I was recruited by a competitor, uh, same job, but uh, slightly uh, better pay and a better opportunity. But I always felt it was important in this relatively small industry, uh, very much take uh, the high road. I put together a very short, right-to-the-point uh, resignation letter, and I had that in my hand as I met with my boss, and he wasn't expecting it, uh, to explain why I was making the move quitting. Uh, technically, I provided the two weeks' notice, but in the industry I'm in, 
it's a competitive thing. They usually politely walk you right. to the door. <laughs> With your box uh, of future endeavors, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here, here's but your box of future like, endeavors. Good luck to you, Kent. Yeah, right. Right. But I think it's very important. You know, take the high road. I was very complimentary of my boss and the prior employer. Uh, you know, as they say, what comes around goes around. So take the high road, gave them the notice, but... Uh, they very politely walk you yeah. to the door that same day. Well, no, th- and I think people need to be prepared for that. But I see. I, I I agree. I don't. And maybe maybe I have been both blessed and cursed in the course of my life because I, except when I was a kid. I mean, but but as an adult, I, I've liked the places I've worked at. I, I think I mean, some places I like better than others. But I always think think I've been treated very well. I think I've been treated fairly. And you know, at some point in time, though, it comes time to, to leave. You want to move on. In my case, I wanted to change careers, for example. So I stopped private practice of law, and I went to, you know, I went and started doing radio and all. But it didn't mean that I didn't don't respect and didn't appreciate the, the treatment I got at the law firm I was at. And I, same thing was true with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and same thing was true with the insurance company I worked at before I got through law school. I mean, I think people treated me very well, and so you always wanted to be respectful of that and appreciate the, the fact that what people had done with you. Now, maybe that's just because I never really worked for any length of time at, at a bad place to work. Now, here's one of the texts that says, Jeff, Wisconsin is an at-will state. If an employer can fire me with no reason and no warning, I can resign with no reason or no warning. And, and the answer is yes, you, you can do that. But as we frequently say on this program, just because you have a right to do something doesn't necessarily make it the right thing to do. And I, I just I, I bring this up because I'm, I I know that there's all sorts of people that are quitting and, of jobs, and it's kind of like I in many cases it's the no show, no call. They just don't show up. I don't think that's responsible, and I don't think it's fair to your coworkers. I, I really I really don't because somebody's got to pick up the the slack for that. And again, unless you've been in a really abusive sort of situation, I, I just don't think it's fair to not show up. I mean, and I think. This is one of the types of things that even in today's job market, where right now the employees ha- have a lot of that they're they're in demand, and, and yeah, you you can move from this grocery store to that grocery store, this box big box retailer to that box re- big box retailer. It's not necessarily always going to be that case, and I guess I've just never understood that the desire to gratuitously burn bridges. I mean, obviously, if you're in a really really awful situation, th- th- that's one thing, but but generally speaking, burning bridges doesn't accomplish um, a, a, a lot. Um, now, here's one. Jeff, I just left my job of two years. The manager wasn't addressing the hostile, toxic environment of the workplace, um, much to my um, dis- discouragement. So I resigned effective immediately without notice. Now, maybe those are the extreme sort of situations that, if, that people feel that appropriate. But I, I guess I was just looking at a story about how, you know, if you're going to resign, um, there's some things to consider, and including now, if you're going to write a letter, make it short, make it sweet. You don't need to list all your grievances. You're walking out the door. I think if it's possible, it's always best to offer to stick around with the transition. Now, it might be a situation like our last caller was talking about where they say, okay, well, if you're leaving, that, that's fine. We appreciate that you offered us two weeks, but you're gone. At some point in time, you, you might need that referral or you might run into, you just never know. Life is full of surprises. And I guess, you know, five years from now, you, you might run into that same person that you, you worked with that you quit on. And don't you want to leave on a good note, if at all possible? So if you're thinking about resigning, at least think those sort of things through. 
Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We are, by the way, continuing to monitor the developments in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Uh, the jury is in its second full day of deliberations. The news is that around 11 o'clock, they asked to be they asked to see various videos that have been shown and introduced in evidence's trial. Again, the judge, of course, gave him permission to do it. it it's evidence. And so they cleared the courtroom, and the, the jurors are going to watch the videos that they want to see for as long as they want to see them in the courtroom itself. And there, it's, it's empty, so they can continue to have their discussions and see this is that or whatever. Uh, there's no time limit as to how long the, the deliberations can take. So what typically happens is, oh, you know, towards, let, let us assume for the sake of argument, they don't say that they have a verdict by three or four o'clock. What typically will happen is sometime for 30 or five, if the jury hasn't reached out and said, we, we want to knock off for the day, um, the judge will bring them back in the courtroom and they'll say, okay, what, what do you want to do? Do you want to go home and come back at nine o'clock tomorrow and start again? Or do you want to continue with your deliberations and should we order sandwiches in for dinner or things like that? Once the jury gets the case, typically they get to decide how they proceed with their deliberations as, as long as they're you know working on the case. I, this judge, I'm sure, wouldn't let them say, we don't want to come in till noon and then maybe we're going to knock off at three. So th- they'll pretty much get to decide their own schedule. And if they don't have a verdict by late this afternoon, my guess is the judge will, again, give them the opportunity to decide whether you want to go on or not. If they're close to a verdict, and this is where sometimes these people who watch juries I think read too much into stuff. Um, if they're if they're close to a verdict, may, maybe they want to you know continue their deliberations into the evening. Otherwise, maybe it's kind of like, hey, let's sleep on this. Let's come back tomorrow morning. I, I've had I've had all sorts of stuff like that, and it's you, you talk to some of these jurors afterwards, and you kind of go, why did you stay out? I will tell you this: I rarely got. I net not never, but I rarely got verdicts on Thursdays, like if, especially for a trial that had lasted a week or two. And th- this might sound silly, but I'll tell you why. You, had, I, I talked to some of the jurors. There would be there would be members of the jury who um, had to go back to work. And so if you've been off of work for two weeks, if you return the verdict on Thursday, you got to go back to work on Friday. I cannot tell you how many times I had jurors knock off for the night on Thursday night, come back Friday morning, 8.30 or 9 o'clock, they've got a verdict by 10 in the morning. It's just, you know, and you, I understand that this all seems kind of haphazard, but there's all sorts of factors like that that, that all come into play with this. So, you know, who knows? And like I've been saying for the last couple of days, anybody that's guessing as to when a verdict is going to be reached is doing exactly that. They're just guessing when the verdict is going to be reached. I mean, the only people who really know what's going on are the 12 people that are in that jury room that are deliberating. But regardless, once we know what the verdict is, we'll, of course, endeavor to bring it to you, and there'll be plenty of opportunities to discuss it. One of the other questions that the people had, and I'm getting is, what, with especially with all the, the protesters, demonstrators, whatever, who are outside the courthouse, one of the questions is, does the jury have to walk through those? Here's what I understand they've done. Every day, and I don't know if they change this up or whatever, Every day, there is a location that the jurors go to outside the courthouse. It's somewhere else. 
and I don't know if they change it up or wherever, and, and they all meet, and then they're brought in together. So they come in at, as a group. So it's not a situation where you've got one juror that's, I don't know, driving around the, the courthouse looking to find a parking space, and there's people that are, you know, yelling at them or, or whatever. That, that's, that's how they're doing it, which candidly strikes me as being relatively smart. All right. Here is something that wasn't smart. Who would have figured? This is just another one of these examples of what happens when you let wokeness and political correctness take over from common sense. Now, we went through a period a couple of years back where it was what I would describe as the war on the police. You know, the police are, in fact, our enemies. Let's defund the police. Let's treat the police. The police are an occupying force. We don't want them in our schools. We don't want them in our neighborhoods. And we've seen how that has, by and large, worked out. You defund the police. You cut back the number of cops. And what's happened? You know, crime just spikes. Well, you know, quickly, then people rethink, hey, gee, maybe having 25% fewer police officers on the streets, that maybe that's maybe that's not a great idea. Yeah, who would have thunk? Well, in the People's Republic of Madison, one of the ways that you had some people who decided to view the police as enemies was the idea of going after the schools. And about a year or so ago, as part of this whole defund the police, the police are the bad guys, one of the things that they did in Madison is the Madison School Board last year voted to remove police officers from the city's four main high schools. Um, so the, the idea was that they, the term is SRO, school resource officer, but they are, they're sworn police officers who are in the building. They're in the building for a couple reasons. Number one is that they provide a liaison between the school and the, the, the police department. Two, they, they tend to humanize, I think, police officers because it's an interaction with the kids, and the kids get to see that maybe contrary to what they've seen on the news or whatever, police officers are human. Hey, you know the school resource officer, and you know you get to know them a little bit. And third, let's be honest, they're there for a security presence. If something bad happens, you've got a cop that's immediately on the scene. You don't have to wait till 911 is called. But in any event, the politically correct and the woke culture at Madison School Board said, we're getting rid of those school resource officers. Okay, well, well, how how has this worked out? And actually, the, the Wisconsin State Journal has an interesting editorial on this. They say, well, the Madison School Board voted to remove police officers from the city's four main high schools. But the truth is, the cops never really left, even though they are no longer stationed there, according to a log of emergency calls to East High School this fall. So this is Madison East. The, the, yeah, yeah, we pulled them out, but it doesn't mean they're gone, because now that we've pulled them out, we've got cops there all the time. Madison police have responded 63 times. Since the start of the school year to East High and its surrounding area between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., this is about once a day on average. So you pull the cops out of the schools, and what happens? Well, you find out that you need the cops in the schools. This includes more than 15 officers who rushed to calls for help from the school officials um, a week ago Monday at East High School. The officers used 
pepper spray to break up a melee of fights outside East at lunchtime amid a crowd of students, some parents, and a man with a baseball bat. Um, this scary violence convinced more than a third of the student body to stay home the following day. All right, and the numbers go on and on. The story I'm looking at, oh, before that, more than 10 officers responded to a massive brawl October 20th outside East. Other police calls from to East High School um, September 1st to November 5th have included reports of battery, disturbances, threats, sexual assaults, and hit and run. The level of violence, it apparently seems unprecedented, and yet... We don't have cops in the schools. Now, this is just one high school. I don't have the numbers of the other three high schools, but my guess is their experience is not too much different than at East. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I believed it was a staggeringly stupid idea to pull the cops out of these high schools in the first place. Well, now that we're four months or so into this experiment, and I put that in air quotation marks, it it appears that pulling the cops out of the schools was not a good idea because now you've got even more cops that are having to come back to deal with problems. All right. Do police officers, school resource officers belong in the schools, and should they be put back in in the places that have removed them? 855-616-1620. We discuss. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back. Okay, so the Madison School District pulls the police, the school resource officers from all the high schools. Well, well, guess what? They really haven't pulled the police there because the cops are back on an almost daily basis because of various incidents. It To me, it's just crazy, and it was a very bad decision. And we're seeing these chickens come home to roost really quickly. We're joined right now by Chief David Moore, who's the chief of police in Janesville. Chief, good afternoon. Good afternoon. What do you think about all this? Well, we uh, have three middle schools and two high schools, and I have officers assigned to each one of those schools. And we look at it as being vitally important to avoid tragedy, uh, to avoid issues of uh, safety because mm-hmm. these officers are in the schools they're building relationships with the kids they're um, building relationships with the staff and we think that we can avoid much of this violence mm-hmm. that way rather than just having some uninformed patrol officers show up in the middle of a, of a scene and try and solve it that way well plus i mean just going back to what you say just the the ability of of their officers to interact on a daily non-confrontational non-investigative way with a lot of the kids to me that's got to be a huge value in and of itself it it lets people see that police are are authority figures but also that they're people too no you're absolutely right um you know we spent a lot of our time trying to build relationships with everybody in the community, and in particular, our youth. And this is just a a very um, good way for us to build those relationships. Yeah, plus, as you were saying, the the other thing is, if if something bad happens, and you hope that's not the case, but if there's a fight that breaks out or something, you've got somebody that's on scene that can respond, you know, almost instantaneously instead of having to, you know, somebody calls 911, and by that time, you've got 40 people, including parents, and it's a major league brawl that's going on. Maybe that presence can help stop something before it gets a lot worse. It certainly does, and that's our, our belief. Right. Uh, so you think it's worth the money? 
It is. We have a uh, working relationship with the schools where we share the cost. Um, they see the value in it as well, and it just makes for a more safe environment in our schools. Yeah, um, Chief, thanks for joining us. That's Chief David Moore from Janesville calling in. Yeah, I, I just, it, it, was a, it was just a flat-out bad decision that the Madison School Board made that was a knee-jerk, in my opinion, just a, a nod to political correctness. When they did this, this was at a time where you had the community that, at least not the whole community, but a segment of the community that was all up in arms about the cops are the enemies and they're an occupying force and we don't want to have our children have to deal with these, these police officers. And, and, and they might be carrying guns and we might be intimidated about this. Well, yeah, I, I, this was completely and totally predictable. You pull the police out and problems are going to get worse. I just my only surprise is that it, it's gotten as bad as it has as quickly as it has. And this is one where, look. People make mistakes all the time, but maybe the Madison School Board needs to understand right away that they have made a huge mistake. Get the school resource officers back in the school. Let the kids go back to learning, and, and maybe maybe you won't have to have people calling 911 as much, and maybe you'll nip some of these problems in the bud. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa, we've been playing that clip of an interview they did on Wisconsin's Morning News. By the way, I'm, I'm going to be on. I'm going to be joining the gang at uh, 7:20 tomorrow morning. Oh, nice. Okay. But mm-hmm. we've been playing a clip all day from some self-proclaimed legal expert who says that this is the worst prosecution case since OJ and stuff. Paul huh? Violas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that that is grossly. I I, I have as a general rule. I comment about stuff that appears on other shows in the station stuff that is in my opinion a grossly unfair statement and i mean the guy, the guy made it but i look I, I i think this is a case as i've said before that screams reasonable doubt the uh, the the problem if i were to criticize the prosecution the problem is i think the case was grossly overcharged i, I mean i i think they developed this theory that Rittenhouse was this white supremacist who came there looking to, to shoot people indiscriminately, and, and that's not what the facts show. What the facts show, in my opinion, is that you have this sort of dumb kid who shows up into a volatile situation that he shouldn't have been in, carrying a gun that he shouldn't have had, and he quickly gets over his head. I, I mean, I, I just I, I don't buy this notion that he was somebody that just came looking to kill people. I don't think that's true, and I don't think the evidence at the trial set out that. So I have a problem with the prosecution's theory. I think the case was grossly overcharged. If they had charged this case from the beginning with some of the the lower, the the lesser included things that they went to, I I think that the perception would be different. So to me, it was the charging decision. I think as far as the presentation of the evidence and stuff, they, they, they had what they had. This, you know, this was a, I mean, they, they presented their evidence um, and it was really flawed. They, the, the witnesses they called, I think in many cases, did tend to help the defense as much as it helped the prosecution. But you know, this this was a case that I think for, because of political, small p political reasons, they felt they had to charge and they felt they had to charge it, you know, in, in the extreme. To me, the biggest criticism, like I say, is less the trial presentation, even though they had certainly several things that blew up in their face. But more, more it was just that this was... It, from a prosecutor's perspective, th- this this was a crappy case. I mean, most times as a prosecutor, you you 
since you pick and choose the cases you bring, you're the one that is in control of most of the stuff um, in this particular case because, again, of the pressures to charge and things like that. They the evidence was what the evidence was, and and they went with it. So I, I don't know that it's fair to criticize the presentation. It's fair to criticize the charging decisions because the case was grossly overcharged, no question about it. And I think that makes the presentation look a lot worse, and it and it forced the prosecution to make some arguments that that maybe they they should not have made otherwise. Because I I just I don't see this as a first degree intentional homicide case. I, I just don't. Uh, maybe the jury will end up disagreeing. But I, I am inclined to perhaps cut the prosecution some more slack than some people might because sometimes as a prosecutor you get into these situations where you feel you have a, a moral responsibility to charge the case and the evidence isn't going to get any better and it just it is what it is. And that's the situation I, I think that's going on now. And I, again, who knows exactly what the jury is doing in connection with this, and maybe at the end of the day they'll be convinced that the case has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the other burden, of course, that, that the prosecution has in this case and any case, which is the burden of proof. They've got to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's under a fact circumstance like this. That's that, that's a difficult thing. You know, I know some people are concerned that if Rittenhouse is found not guilty. And keep in mind, I keep saying this, we, we don't ask juries in this country to decide whether or not somebody is guilty or innocent. The word innocent doesn't appear on the jury verdict. The question is guilty or not guilty. And that means has the state proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? And if they haven't proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, then it's not guilty. It, it's not innocent. It's not well, um, we think he did something. The question is, can you prove the charges beyond a reasonable doubt? And and this is, I've said all along, it's a case, especially as to the way it was initially charged, that to me just absolutely screams reasonable doubt. I'm not sure that there's a lot else that the prosecution could have done. If I was prosecuting it, and I've said this before, one of my weaknesses as a prosecutor was I, I tended to give the jury a lot of credit. And I, I always felt that, Less is more. And unless you absolutely had to, if I had a witness, because trials are, as I've talked about, a a search for reasonable doubt. The, The defense attorneys aren't out there trying to prove their client is innocent. They're just out there trying to convince one juror, one juror, that there is a reasonable doubt about whether or not the defendant is guilty. So that, given that fact, if I had witnesses who didn't clearly help me, and I knew it in advance. Sometimes they're kind of a surprise, but a lot of times, if, if, if you know that they clearly don't help you, I would keep them off the stand. If I, had, if I had four witnesses that said the same thing, I'd pick the best of those four and just let the other three go. Because, you know, if you put the more witnesses you put on, the more chances you have that one witness is going to contradict the other. And so I, I admit, as a weakness, uh, my Biggest weakness was probably that I would undertry cases, but you know we won almost every case that I had in a trial. But and but again, it was just that you don't want to give stuff that's going to be reasonable doubt in this particular case, just because of the fact situation, the charges they chose. I, I don't think they had a lot of choice but to put on some of these witnesses that you knew weren't necessarily going to help you. But I, I 
I'm not as critical of the prosecution as other people were. And, and even if the case is, results in a, in a not guilty across all counts, which I wouldn't be surprised about if, if that comes in, I don't know that that's because the prosecution did the worst job since the OJ prosecutors. Marsha Clark um, did a lousy job in the OJ case. That, that was a case where the prosecutors completely and totally lost control of it, aided and abetted in part by a, a, a media-hungry judge. But I don't think it's fair to say this is the worst prosecution president's present presentation since the O.J. case. Um, the O.J. case should have been, no pun intended, a dead-bang winner. This case was always a very, very challenging prosecution to begin with. The biggest complaint, like I say, if you're going to rip the prosecution is, I, I think perhaps they, they should have been more circumspect in bringing the charges in the first place and then being willing to adjust their narrative when the facts didn't necessarily justify that. Okay, when we come back, I want to talk about the future of newspapers. And candidly, it's not good. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. There's a website called Urban Milwaukee. Which, it's, it's run by, um, Bruce Murphy, who has been around Milwaukee for decades. He's been on air from, our air from time to time. And it, it, it's, it's got a liberal orientation to it, but that, that's okay. What they're doing is, is they're cover, they cover the, the city of Milwaukee in particular in, in a way with, in a way candidly that I, I think a, a lot of the TV stations and a lot of the, the, the Journal Sentinel, for example, just don't do anymore. And they, they do deeper dives on issues. And to that extent, again, you gotta understand there's a liberal bias to it, but you, you take that with a grain of salt. He has a really interesting piece. The headline's called The Journal Sentinel's Drastic Decline. And he, he's just talking about the, the numbers uh, affecting the newspaper and and there's there there's a little bit of a disagreement about this but but here's the deal sunday subscribers in 2012 9 years ago stood at 299,000 let's round that up to 300,000 by 2018 that number had gone down to 170,000 um in 2019 it dropped to 147,000 and it had dropped to about 130,000 in 2020 so that's a loss in the space of eight years, that's a loss of about 70,000 subscribers. Daily subscribers, 2012, they had 175,000. That's down to 83,000 in um, 2020. Um, new reports say that um, as of like October 1st, the daily print subscribers was down to 67,000 and 7,000 more for 7,500 for paid electronic copies, which are the digital subscribers, which is, you know, that's that's like nothing. So, I mean, there's been this huge effort to try to get people to view things digitally. And again, the, the point of this article is that if you look at these numbers, it, it's just it's just not happening. And when you look at this drastic decline in the number of people who are reading hard copies of the newspaper, and you see it's not being supplanted by, you know, people that are reading this digitally, it makes you wonder, you know, how newspapers can continue to exist. Now, for me, 
I love newspapers, but the way I consume newspapers has changed dramatically. I, I used to get hard copies of newspapers delivered to the house, um, multiple time, uh, multiple different newspapers. Well, the, the cost just became excessive. I mean, I used to get the Journal Sentinel delivered to the house, and they, they were asking three, four hundred bucks or something for a yearly subscription for thirty or forty dollars. You can get the digital subscription. So I, I read the local newspaper digitally. I mean, I still have the subscription. I get access to everything, but I don't get the hard copy. That's the same thing that's true of a number of other papers I read for the job. The Washington Post, the L.A. Times, the Chicago Tribune. I I have access to them digitally. So I read them online, and, you know, when I'm interested in something, I print it out. I do get the Wall Street Journal on a daily basis, and I get the New York Times on on weekends. I I guess Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, because I have some time to sit down and just kind of spend some time reading the paper. But the bottom line is I I have switched almost totally to reading newspapers online. And I've gotten to the point that I I really I I don't miss the hard copies of of the papers. So when wherever I am, it doesn't matter whether I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin or Key West, Florida or, or wherever I am, I've got my laptop computer and I can sit down in the morning with a cup of coffee and I can go read all the different newspapers that I'm used to to reading. So I don't mind doing it digitally. Well, one of the things that you're starting to see happen with these like circulation numbers that are dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping is that it's older people who tend to, I mean, still get the hard copies of the paper. And they're aging out of that. And as people get older, and stop reading the hard copies of the newspaper, the only way you can stay viable is to replace them with younger readers who are either getting the hard copies of the paper, which they're not, or reading things digitally online. And it it doesn't appear, if you look at these numbers, it, it doesn't appear that these newspapers are replacing the number of print readers who are getting older and and dying off to be blunt about it, with younger readers who are reading the stuff digitally. Now, I've adapted, like I say, to reading stuff digitally. It's just, it's now second nature to me to the point that unless I'm waiting for the oil to be changed in my car or something and I'm sitting around, I just, I, and I'm sitting around like the dealer and they've got a newspaper there, I, I never look at hard copies of newspapers anymore. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I I think that we all have this desire to be consumers of news. But to me, I just think moving forward, with the exception of maybe a couple of the big national papers, maybe with the exception of USA Today that they they put in hotel rooms, maybe with the exception of something like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, I just, I'm wondering whether five years from now you are going to have any daily newspapers that are still out there. And if you look at these numbers that, uh, again, this website's running from the most recent journal circulation numbers, you wonder how how they can even keep the doors open, you know, with that loss of print subscribers, especially if you're not replacing it with digital subscribers. And even if you're replacing with digital subscribers, that's a fraction of the cost of what you would pay to get a hard copy of a paper delivered. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Will there be print newspapers five years from now? We discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
Here's a text, Jeff. I sure hope that newspapers don't go away because doing the crossword on the computer is just not the same. No, you do what I do every day with the Wall Street Journal. I just pull up the Wall Street Journal crossword puzzle. I download it, and then I, I print it, and then I do it. Sit here at work and do it from time to time. That's one of my my habits here. 855-616-1620. Jeff, a friend of mine owned three small local newspapers. He sold them last year for a dollar each. Sadly, I don't think they'll be, I don't think newspapers will be around in five years. I, I do think that the shoppers, like in small communities where it's, you know, you, you've got the, the weekly like free papers that's got all the different ads and coupons that might be around. But again, the, the, the daily papers and if you if these circulation numbers that they're talking about are, are right for the Journal Sentinel, you wonder how much longer they can sustain it. And I'm not rooting for failure. Like I say, I the, the number of print subscribers dropping dramatically, not being replaced by a significant number of digital subscribers, because and, and like I say, even the digital subscribers, you pay a fraction of this 855-616-1620 that's the acunet mortgage talk and text line jeff our society's overall attention span is shrieking shrinking and even if the papers went all digital sadly no one reads anything anymore beyond the headlines well that that's true i mean i recognize that in some respects i am a dinosaur when i i have the even the digital subscriptions all these different papers i talked about and i i you know when i was on vacation that was one of the things i grabbed the laptop get a top get a cup of coffee sit there and I'd, I'd spend about 45 minutes kind of you know reading newspapers online from all across the country but my guess is that there's a lot of newspaper junkies like i used to be who just haven't done that for whatever reasons they don't feel comfortable with you know reading the stuff online i quickly got past that and then of course there's nobody under the age of 40 that picks up a newspaper or whenever i say that there's somebody oh i do but most people under the age of 40 just don't pick up the hard copy of a newspaper, which makes you wonder what the future is going to be, especially if you're not replacing those older print subscribers with three or four digital younger subscribers for every print subscriber you you lose. Um, no question about it. And a lot of people are talking about the local paper and its political slant and things like that. And that that's all true to an extent. But there's a bigger, much more fundamental problem, I think, that's that's out there. And that's how do these papers survive moving forward? And the question is, if you're not the New York Times and you're not the Wall Street Journal and USA Today, you know, how do you survive? And my truthful answer is, I don't know. Okay, when we come back, we'll talk to John McCure, find out what he and Melissa have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.